It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That pretty starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a freaking listen to yourself in the world, but it don't need something in your own head. Beat it up and I've got no people. And a freaking platter with a fear fight down. Like fire in the fire, but it's just a gang from the government for hiring the combat site. But it wasn't coming in a hurry, but you're getting down your neck. The border trap is some the ground with that low plane flying and up for overflow, but in the corner to put in a little secret devil, secret devil world in your own knees. See your heart, tell me that the river in the river was the right. You patriotic, patriotic, plan might right, might feel it in British life. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Hello, this is the hour. Of doom. <laughs> oh, yeah. Nope. It's the hour of bloom. It is. Or well, maybe both. It might be both. Doom That's and bloom. Doom and bloom, right. Survival medicine hour. <laughs> hey, friends and neighbors. Welcome to, as the lovely Miss Amy says, the doom and bloom survival medicine hour. A bit of brave brevity in a bilious world. Bilious. Bilious. I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find a thousand posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. And I'm Amy Alton, also known as Nurse Amy, and I am an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And the hostess with the mostess, I might add. Thank you, and we're here in Jacksonville, Florida. That's right, the gang of two, the dynamic duo, the prodigious pair is in beautiful Jacksonville, Florida, where we're going to be speaking at the NPS Expo at the Jacksonville Fairgrounds, and we're going to be doing a semi-private class with just about 20 people Mm -hmm. in Jacksonville as well, all sorts of important stuff that people learn at our classes, stopping hemorrhage, suturing, stapling, all sorts of things, wound care, when not to suture and staple, which is actually even more important. Burns. Burns. Fractures. Fractures. Um... All sorts of stuff, really, even yep. even how to recognize a pneumonia on a stethoscope. So we teach a lot of stuff, and we're going to be doing a lot of those classes in the coming year. So definitely check out our classes page over at doomandbloom.net. Now, yes, I have a question. Oh, wait, I just want to tell them, anybody who's listening to this, when are you going to put this up? Putting it up what day? Uh, immediately. Okay, well then today is... Thursday, November 30th, so if you're listening soon, the NPS Expo is actually on Friday and Saturday, instead of usually Saturday and Sunday. So Friday is 11 to 7, and Saturday is, I think, 10 to 7, long, long days at the Jacksonville Fairgrounds, right Right. in the heart of their city here. Right, we'll also have all of our medical kits and things for people to check out, so if you need to fill some holes in your medical supplies... Definitely come by and check us out at the Jacksonville Fairgrounds this weekend. And just say hi. That's right. (laughs) 
Uh, friends and neighbors. Friends and neighbors. Have you been injured in an accident? With a rapacious reptile? Well, our attorney says, don't call me. Call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. And listen to this. <laughs> All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. And I just want to say something. We're in a hotel room. (laughs) And I can only imagine if the walls are kind of thin, what people think when they hear us saying these things. It is. What are they doing in there? What kind of crazy medical experiments are going on in the next hotel room? Who's this Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy character? (laughs) Well, modern and standard medical care is wonderful, but if when it is not around the corner, not just around the corner, will you know what to do, or will you just be a looky-loo? A looky-loo. Just standing by like a no, standing by bystander? No, you're not going to do that. You're going to show the world that you've got more sense than a case of cucumbers by learning what to do for <laughs> injuries and illness in times of trouble. And while you're at it, you're going to get some medical supplies and maybe a medical kit to go along with all that knowledge. What better place to get it than this young lady's entire line of often imitated but never equaled medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. They'll help you handle medical issues you'll face in any disaster, and they're designed by an honest-to-gosh medical doctor and an advanced registered nurse practitioner. Who are those people, anyhow? I don't know, but I have a twitchy eye. You do? Is there any remedies for a twitchy eye? I, will, I think it's lack of sleep. I have to look at my book of herbalism. It, I'd say it started a few days ago. It twitched just a couple times, and then the next day, a few more. Today, it's been pretty bad. That's because And you the have, drive, I think I had a bad night's sleep last night. Right. That's what does it. When you don't have enough sleep, then you wind up getting those ticks and those little nervous oh, muscle gosh. contractions. So, like happened, I hope nobody can see it. It's happened to me so many You haven't I, seen it, have you? No, I haven't. You're looking. But I've had that so many times. I, Isn't it when weird, I was though? a resident, I probably walked around with it all the time. Because One I eye, though. Never had sleep. Did you ever have it in both eyes? I um, only get it in my left eye. Probably Not, one eye at a I don't time. think ever my right eye. Hmm. I don't know. Very strange. I know. Probably it could happen in both eyes, but yeah. I, I just it just happened to me in one eye. As far as I know, as far of course, other people probably looking at me probably thought I was a twitching <laughs> mess. You know, it's funny. I I don't think you can see it unless you're just staring directly at someone's eye, waiting for it to happen. I don't think most people notice it. We were setting up the booth today for the show, and what's his name? E.J. Snyder from. Yeah, E.J. Snyder from uh, Naked, Naked and Afraid. Afraid. Yeah, yeah we, good friend. We know him, and mm-hmm. he, he came over to say hi, and we were chit-chatting. I swear my eye twitched about 20 times so bad that I actually reached up and just put my my hand over my eye. I'm like, okay, this is totally crazy. I look like a nut. Well, that And I bet he didn't even notice. He, I bet he didn't even notice. <laughs> he's He's a nice guy. But he's been on television. I think you folks probably understand what I'm saying. <laughs> yes. When you've been on television, yes. you've been on television. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Speaking... So he had a lot of interesting things to tell me he's been doing recently. Well, that's good. I mean, we'll be... No television, though, this year. Mm, no. Nope. I think it's hard for people who have been on a specific show. We kind of talked about this a little bit. 
I think they sort of get like that's their character. And and you were mentioning like people who were sort of famous in Star Trek. It was hard for them to get out of that character. I mean, uh, not a lot. Mr. Sulu. Mr. Sulu would always be Mr. Sulu, right? You know, and um, you know Spock was Spock. I mean, he did actually do a few other roles, but it was funny when you'd see him doing something else. You always just thought of him as Spock. Spock. Like, hey, where's his pointy ears? I know it's a it's a blessing and a curse. I would think it's true. So people who really want to be in television, I think if they do it through reality shows, that's kind of what you're known for, right? You know, he's sort of you know his his famous um, take is is from that show, and I'm not sure it it translates to a lot of other things unless well, it's survival act- shows. Well, he actually can't be on other shows most likely they i'm sure those naked and afraid people have a what they call a restrictive covenant which says that you can't be on another show for x number of years for another show other than theirs that's amazing that they can do that but anyway nice guy he's doing a lot of speaking tours right and you can see him at the mps expo this weekend as well like he's 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 a very nice guy good guy well i wish wish him all the best i was talking about our medical kits when you so rudely interrupted i just no i wanted to challenge our (laughs) listeners to compare our kits for contents quality and cost with anybody else's stuff or just ask anybody who's ever bought one and i'll bet that you'll decide that those are the kits Ours that you should have in your medical storage. All right, now wait. You have to explain to our listeners. You didn't really mean that. What? That I rudely interrupted you. Yo, oh, no. You didn't mean you, that. Uh, you, he winked at me when so he said nice, that. You so nicely interrupted me. Yes. Yes. You so sweetly and lovely. You know what? I tell people we have me. twin speak. Yes, we do. Twin speak is when one person starts the story, another person adds pieces and details and then the first person comes back and adds more this is how we are when if you guys are ever talking to us together and we have a story a specific thing to tell you we'll we'll both interject so i don't consider it interrupting i consider it i have to add important details i think so i consider it a (laughs) valuable contribution to the conversation which is what you really meant to say in the first place exactly that's exactly right (laughs) I know that, but they don't know that. <laughs> hey, guys, you know, we learn as much from you as you do from us. That should be pretty clear. So get a move on, John, and reach out to the geezer and his goddess. It's so easy. And here's the lovely nurse Amy to tell you how. Absolutely. Email us anytime at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Find us on Facebook at our group, Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Also, like... And I guess subscribe to Doom and Bloom Facebook page. You can also follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show. And don't forget our YouTube channel at DR Bones Nurse Amy. And I think our recent one was on influenza. Right. Now we'll talk a little bit about how to differentiate cold versus oh, good. influenza today, as a matter of fact. Mm-hmm. But first I want to talk just a little bit to go over, if I didn't do it last week, the use of honey... For treating burns. You know, one of the best natural remedies for treating the burn patient is raw, unprocessed honey, right? Absolutely. And generally speaking, the commercial products that you find in your grocery store are rarely going to be actually raw, unprocessed. So you have to look clearly at the labels because um, 
again, it's probably hard to find it at the grocery stores. Better places would be um, mar- local farmers markets, local right? Beekeepers, local right. markets, yeah. That farmers place. markets is actually what I'm trying to say. And natural food stores. I mean, just be careful. Look at your labels. And again, if you know somebody who sells honey, get it from them. Better to know your source and support our local beekeepers. They need it. Right. Processed honey winds up getting heated a lot. Yes. That heating, heating actually robs it of a lot of its antibacterial activity and some of its hydrating properties. So mm-hmm. that's important. The, the, the microbe killing effect of honey, raw and processed honey, is thought to be due to an acidic pH that's inhospi- inhospitable. Inhospitable, to right. To bacteria. And raw honey helps prevent and even treat infections in many wounds, wounds and indeed can be used in first, second, and if you know other op- option is available, maybe as a last resort, even for third degree burns. Which we're strictly talking about you cannot get to a hospital because all third degree burns need to go to a hospital. And I think we did mention that no matter what size they are, even from the width of a, a pinky nail to you know even anything bigger... So, how do you use honey on burns? Immediately after um, your first 15 minutes of cooling down, which you should always have, running water, right, or cool compresses, make sure you put a lot of this honey. You want to not only cover just the burned area, but you want to go a little over it and make sure it's a nice, thick area. You want to seal it off. You want to make sure that no bacteria can get to that open skin. Remember, we've discussed how terrible our air is and all of the things that can be brought to us. Bacteria in not, the air, Right, sure. bacteria, not just, you know, with somebody touching you or something touching that area, but just the air. So put a nice thick area on it. Cover that honey up with the plastic wrap. Now, the plastic wrap, um, I w- would say, would probably be most important in a third degree because you really really want to keep that honey covering that exposed area Um, if you have the waterproof dressings which are called non-adherent or telfas sometimes just non-stick they have sort of a shiny surface on them those would be very helpful to have they are sterile so again you're not adding more bacteria and you're keeping the area covered to protect it Um, you can use tape if you want to make sure that you're not damaging other skin areas probably use paper tape doesn't hold as well but when you're taking it on and putting off uh, taking putting on and taking off the dressings if you put really strong tape on you you could damage the skin so you want to use a paper tape if you can or a cling wrap or a curlex something that uh, wraps around it even an ace bandage loosely wrapped around will hold on gauze and right. the not word, too tight. Right. What you said loosely is very important loosely. because with uh, severe burns, you may have a lot of swelling, and, and especially second-degree second, second degree bad, maybe maybe third-degree burns, some of them. And what happens is— Depends on that, where it is. Right. right. If, you have, if you have cling wrap, let's say, over an extremity and you have a lot of swelling, that cling wrap may actually constrict that area and cause a loss of circulation distal to— the the burn and when i say distal i mean further away from the torso so uh, if you have it on your forearm for example and you put cling wrap all the way around and it cuts off the circulation you'll notice the loss of color for example in the hand right so exactly that's what i mean by distal exactly 
Now, if the dressing begins to fill up with fluid oozing out of the wound, you might need to change the dressing pretty regularly, pretty but frequently. do not wash the honey out. This is not a wound. When we're, Again, if we're talking about third degrees, you are not going to wash that honey out. All you're going to do is refill it, recover it, refill it. Remember, we're talking about third degrees, so it's deep. You need to fill that up with honey and then, again, over the edges of the surface and keep it covered. You want to keep it really covered and not washing it for the first 20 days. And this is important because you don't want any bacteria getting in there. These are the people who get horrible infections, and it can be fatal. So the honey, at this point, in a survival situation with a third-degree burn, this is just about all you have to possibly help heal the wound and keep them from getting a a really, really terrible infection. So always have a thick layer. Um, Make sure that you completely cover it just again so we can decrease the infection rate. And I would change that dressing again, and we're just talking about the covering, not removing the honey um, two or three times a day because you're going to get a lot of drainage. That's one thing these, these burns do if you can imagine a dam holding back water if you take away the dam which is basically if you take a chunk of your skin out all the capillaries and fluids they uh, leak they leak and so this wound is going to fill up with a lot of stuff right and you can lose a lot of fluid become very dehydrated that's how a lot of people uh, die with really severe burns and oh it's terrible and people do they just swell up so badly in, in areas. I mean, I've seen burns on faces, and they don't even look like people after a couple of days. I mean, it's just so, so bad. This now, is a very scary situation, and we're right. just trying to give you a tool to, you know, If you found use yourself. If right. you are just stuck, this is a dire, dire situation. There's no hospital to get to. Because in any other circumstance, that person needs to be in a right a high level burn unit. Burn unit. And it, without those high technology uh, facilities, the truth is that if you have over about ten percent of your body burned with third degree oh. burns, you're probably looking at somebody who may not survive yeah. in any survival or off grid scenarios. So yeah. It's important to know that there are a lot of limitations with some things. Some things you can't, some people you can't save in mm-hmm. without some of the higher technology that we have these days in modern times. Absolutely. Now I want to talk a little bit. I said I talk a little bit about colds versus. I think influenza. we ran out of time for that, so that's good that you're going over it now. Yeah, I want to. Uh, that's important. I mean, a lot of people. Don't really know how to tell, well, do I have a cold or do I have the flu? Well, they do have similar symptoms. They have fever, headache, nasal congestion, sore throat, cough, aches and pains, things like that, fatigue. Okay, all of these can be seen with either a flu or a cold. However, some, it's a matter of degree. And in a cold, for example, fevers are probably going to be low grade or they may not be there at all. You may not have any fever at all, but. With the flu, you're most likely going to have a fever, and it's very commonly a high fever. So that's one way that you can tell. Mm-hmm. Um, with colds, headaches are not as common as you would see in influ- influenza. Uh, nasal congestion, however, 
is much more commonly seen in colds than you would see in somebody who has the flu. Although the person that does have the flu could easily have some nasal congestion as well. But nasal congestion is probably the most common symptom that you'll see with a cold. Sore throat is also common with a cold as well. That You do see it sometimes with influenza, but it's more occasional than a standard feature. Of course, cough is something you'll see. People cough when they have colds, but when you have influenza, the cough is usually a severe cough. You really have trouble sleeping, for example, because you're coughing so much. So this is something that might clue you in that you've got influenza rather than a cold. Of course, with a cold, you have aches and pains, joint aches, muscle aches, things like that. You're tired, so you have fatigue as well. But with the influenza, those aches and pains are going to be pretty severe, and you're going to be really knocked out. I mean, your fatigue is going to be much more with the flu than it is with a cold. So these are just some of the reasons that uh, a flu is different from a cold and some of the ways that you can tell the difference. By the way, colds will resolve themselves over about a week or so. Mm-hmm. Influenzas commonly last longer than that. And then the flu could weaken you enough that a secondary respiratory infection deep in your lungs can actually form caused by bacteria. When bacteria notice that the immune system's down, they can come in and and cause what we call an opportunistic infection. And that actually can cause pneumonia and that pneumonia can cause a person to die. Absolutely. It's think about if you're at war, you know, two countries that they're all using all their resources. So it's you trying to defend against the, the virus of the flu and you're weakened because you're using all your soldier, excuse me, your soldiers, your white blood cells to fight. And then something else comes along. Well, your soldiers are tired. They're weakened. And another army <laughs> comes been, by. They're being right. o- preoccupied already. And then another army comes in and you just don't have enough reserve to take care of the second one. That's exactly right. And that's exactly what happened in the Battle of Hastings when England was taken over by Norman, uh, the Norman uh, knight w- uh, baron, William the Conqueror. What happened was is that King Harold of England uh-huh. fought a battle with the Vikings at a place called Stamford Bridge and actually defeated the Vikings. Okay, so they were winning. And then they he had won. And then he heard about another army that came on shore, and that mm-hmm. was William the Conqueror's army, the Norman army. And they had to go and defend against that. They lost that one because they, they were weakened. tired. Because they had lost troops, you know, to the Viking battle. And indeed, that's why William the Conqueror won the throne of England. That's right. Very now, interesting. You're always full of history information. Oh, I'm just hysterical. <laughs> oh, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, acid. I wrote an article on acid reflex off the grid recently, and uh, of course, I was wondering what kind of acid you were about to talk about. <laughs> LSD. I've, I've heard of some other acid. What was that from, like the '60s or something? Yes. yes. It would take a little acid. <laughs> some people think I'm on I'm on acid all the time. No, no, no. <laughs> well, you know, in, in normal times, you were in, too young for that back then. I was. I was a young, so young. Children don't do that. <laughs> 
You know, we are in a high-stress world. And in normal times, yes. you probably know someone who suffers from something called GERD, G-E-R-D. That's gastroesophageal reflux disease. Gastro refers to your stomach. Esophageal refers to the tube that runs from it to your throat. And acid reflux is essentially acid that escapes the stomach and goes all the way up to your throat. And we call this GERD, gastroesophageal reflux disease, G-E-R-D for short. And it's a severe form of this acid reflux that can really ruin a person's quality of life. And sure enough, I got to tell you, if you have somebody who's dealing with a lot of this in a survival situation, the truth is work efficiency is going to suffer. And if you, when you need people at 110% efficiency and you've got somebody who's dealing with a lot of heartburn, you know, having chest pain or heartburn, really bad heartburn, well, you know what? You've got somebody who needs your help. Now, you have an area actually called the lower esophageal sphincter, and uh, otherwise known as the LES, and that's what separates the contents of the stomach from entering the esophagus. Now, the stomach is very acidic, right? The fluid in the stomach is acidic. It, it digests break your food, down the breaks food. down the food. Yep. But your esophagus doesn't do that, and so it doesn't really have a very acidic pH. Right. Well, what happens is the lining of the esophagus is not built to handle the acidity of the stomach. Exactly right. And so any exposure to that and your esophagus goes, whoa, it's a burn. So if you have a faulty lower esophageal sphincter or LES, what that does is it allows food to cross the border from the stomach to the esophagus. Go back up. Right, exactly. It goes back up because the sphincter, the lower esophageal sphincter, fails to close tightly enough to keep juices from going back up. Are you going to talk about why this happens to some people? We're going to talk about that. Okay, good. Now, up to about 20% of the U.S. population does suffer from some form of gastroesophageal reflux, and that means that it's likely that the medic is going to encounter this issue in a remote setting or a survival setting off the grid. We're not going to have the stress that goes with the modern rat race, but there's going to be a lot more basic issues just as concerning, like when is my next meal coming from, right? Right. right. Did that crop get eaten by some crazy bug or get some terrible bacteria exactly exactly there is a condition called a hiatal hernia and this condition occurs when the top of the stomach moves up actually physically moves up part of your stomach through a weak area in the diaphragm which is a muscle that separates your chest from your abdomen helps you breathe and sure enough when that area is weak and you have the top of the stomach moving up through the diaphragm well acid more easily leaves the stomach now, the stomach has a lining that can handle acidic environments. The esophagus, though, becomes inflamed when it's exposed. And the lining becomes weakened and actually can erode, and that condition becomes an ulcer. An ulcer is an area where the lining has eroded. Ulcers can occur anywhere in the stomach and the upper part of the lower intestine, of small intestine, not lower intestine, small intestine, and, of course, in the esophagus. To make the diagnosis of ulcers, or acid reflux disease as opposed to, say, chest pain from heart issues, well, the timing of the discomfort is pretty important. Ulcer and reflux discomfort. So, in other words, ulcers and acid reflux occur soon after eating, but sometimes you'll see them several hours after a meal. You can differentiate them, however, these kinds of issues from other causes of chest pain, like heart disease, in another way. 
That kind of pain gets better by drinking milk or taking antacids. Now, as you can imagine, it wouldn't do much for heart problems for you to take an antacid. And indeed, people with these kinds of symptoms that are not related to the heart, well, you know what? They wind up having worse acid discomfort or worse heartburn, so to speak, or chest pain when they're lying down or when they're eating acidic foods. Also, in the worst cases, especially with ulcers, you may see some unusual bowel movements. They might have blackish bowel movements, which are a sign of bleeding high up in the GI tract, right? In other words, around the stomach or in the upper part of the small intestine. So those stools are blackish, and that's because the blood that has bled into the area has denatured. Now, people also can vomit blood, and if you can vomit blood if you have an ulcer, you can vomit blood uh, that's new, which would be bright red, or you can vomit blood that's a little older, and that looks like coffee grounds. So when you have somebody that vomits coffee grounds, it's very possible that they're having a bleed in their intestinal tract or their stomach. Now, there are certain lifestyle changes that are helpful for people with GERD, eating smaller meals, maybe five times a day, and avoiding acidic foods before bedtime. That could help prevent reflux. Give your stomach at least three hours, though, to empty before you lie down, or add a pillow or two behind your shoulders, head and neck, just to keep your head elevating your acid not going up the esophagus now you'd think that chewing gum would actually increase stomach acid chewing gum however actually produces saliva and saliva acts to buffer to counteract the effect of the acid also we swallow the saliva which might force some of some of those acidic juices further down and back into the stomach where they belong exactly <laughs> now there are a number of foods that are very good to avoid, to not to actually avoid. not eat, to avoid. And those are, of course, acidic fruit like oranges or other citrus, uh, lemons, limes, things like that, uh, grapefruits especially. Uh, fatty foods also, fat is Because they're harder to, to digest, so yeah. they sit in the stomach longer, which gives you also... More acid. Yep, yeah. and, and a longer chance for it to go back up. Exactly. Now, uh, coffee and certain teas, that's a, also very well known to uh, cause... Uh, acid reflux, uh, acidic, other acidic fruit. I mentioned acidic fruit before. Another acidic fruit is what some people think is a vegetable, but it's actually a fruit, is tomatoes. Tomatoes have a lot of acid, so tomato sauce has it. If you eat a lot of Italian food. Onions, then, and I would say hot peppers along yes, those onions. Right. Hot All peppers. spicy foods. Right, so food, Mexican <laughs> food, for example, very spicy, could give you heartburn. Chocolate uh, is chocolate, common. Right. Alcohol. Uh, peppermint. You know, and I think that's that's a lot. So I there I think that's that's. You know, plenty. it's funny that you mentioned peppermint because peppermint's actually a a stomach calmer. They say some. I guess some stomach, people, but it does have the ability to cause more acid. Gotcha. Now I I would say something about habits, and I think people who eat frequently, and I don't mean your frequent meals because there are going to be a few hours apart, but people who just snack all day. And really don't give their stomachs a chance to shut off that valve between the esophagus and the stomach and just digest the food and get it out. If you are constantly eating, you eat a little of this and you eat a little of that and you eat a little of this, you're not letting your stomach shut off the valve right. and just digest the food because right. you have to keep opening it because you keep eating. Right. right, and it's constantly having to produce acid. Right, it's it's on a nonstop train, so... 
eat your meals and then be done. Right. That, Just be finished. That's exact. That is really good advice, by the way. And you probably will lose some weight if you're overweight. Yeah, if you can change just that one habit. Yeah, so don't don't snack so much. Just eat a meal, be done with it, and then eat your next meal and be done with it. And then eat your last meal, hopefully. Although you did ma- mention smaller, frequent meals, but that doesn't mean once an hour or once every 30 minutes. <laughs> exactly. It means eat your food and be done, and then a few hours later, eat your next meal. That's right. Uh, oh, some medicines, of course, aspirin, ibuprofen, other NSAIDs. But those kinds of medicines may cause stomach acid issues. Uh, smoking is thought to worsen GERD, so of course, stop smoking. Uh, one thing about milk, although it's helpful as a treatment, at first, you really should avoid a lot of milk intake because what's happening is you're taking in a lot of fat, especially if it's whole milk, and these high levels of fat ingestion actually increase stomach acid. And uh, it seems that obese people seem to suffer more from acid reflux or GERD uh, if you have excess abdominal fat, it's thought that it presses against the stomach and forces acids up into the esophagus. Uh, weight loss might help. I mean, that's something actually in a very, survival scenario, probably likely pretty likely. When, when we're gonna... wondering where our food's coming from. <laughs> Absolutely. So there's, there's that at least. Uh, medications that commonly relieve acid reflux that are good to have and that are over the counter are cal- uh, calcium carbonate, uh, in other words, Tums, Tums. Uh, magnesium, like Maalox or Mylanta, aluminum, uh, I think aluminum is Mylanta, uh, bismuth, uh, antacids like Pepto-Bismol, Blech. that's why they call it Bismol, <laughs> because it's made of bismuth. The pink. There you go, right, right. Uh, don't get, don't drink the liquid, though. Just have, they have come in tablets now. That's Much right. easier on the mouth. Right. Now, some taste. people do feel that it, co- it coats better. So that's why some right, people, well, I think, listen, use the liquid. When you have terrible heartburn, you'll do just about anything to get rid of it. Right. But the liquid won't be, is not a good survival medicine because it's difficult to store. Uh, uh, right. Right. So, yeah. So that's a big issue. Now, there are uh, pills that are very useful, uh, things like ranitidrine. Uh, ranitidine, which is Zantac, cimetidine, which is Tagamet, and omeprazole, which is Prilosec. All of these medicines are, are useful and they're available in non-prescription strength. That means that you can stockpile them so that you can deal with issues relating to GERD and other kinds of acid reflux. And that's, I think, a great thing for the medic. Now, there are a lot of Tests that they do on people, upper GI series, endoscopy, all sorts of high technology that defines a little bit more and gives you more information about GERD or your particular the particular case that you're dealing with. Sure. These are not an option, of course, off the grid. So you're going to have to deal with some natural remedies. You might run out, if it lasts long enough, you're going to run out of your Zantac or, or Prilosec uh, or, or Tums. So... There's other things that you can to actually think about, do. right? Right. Organic apple cider vinegar is supposed to be good. Mix one tablespoon in four ounces of water. Drink before each meal. Uh, aloe vera juice is supposed to be good. Mix an ounce, uh, one ounce, and two ounces of water. Take it before a meal. Baking soda. People say that's good. Mix one tablespoon in a glass of water. Drink it right away when you I've begin. I've done the to... apple cider vinegar. Right. There you go. Okay, good. It did help me, but I'll tell you what. <laughs> It doesn't taste real good when you're first no, trying it. It is an acquired taste. Absolutely. You know, they have taste. apple cider vinegar drinks now. Remember, I showed them yes. to you at the grocery store? Yes. In the juice section. Wow. Oh, boy. Well, 
<laughs> not something I would grab for when I wanted a refreshing uh, pick-me-up. But hey, it's good for you. It, it, if you got acid, it's good. Uh, there are other things. There's speaking. There are acids that are good for you. Glutamine is an amino acid. It actually has an anti-inflammatory effect. It reduces acid reflux. You find that in, in milk, and you find that in eggs and some other foods. Uh, melatonin, some people say, is useful for that, although I'll, I'll tell you. Melatonin, that's not interesting. Of, not a lot of hard data on this, so I think more studies needed on that one. And I'm sure you guys at home have some home remedies of your own. Please make sure you send us yeah, an email at drponespodcast at aol.com if you have your own natural remedy that works or you can use a, an easy thing too is to go on doom and bloom and just use the contact form that gets to us i have to say that off the grid you're going to have some people in your community your preparedness community or a mutual assistance group that are going to be these stoic uh, native american types that can seem to be able to handle everything but some of these folks may actually have things like heartburn or GERD, things that they might consider trivial, but that actually affects their efficiency. I mean, if you're in pain, let's face it, whether it's from heartburn or anything else, you can lose sleep, you lose sleep, you lose the ability to concentrate. You lose sleep, your eyes start switching. Exactly. There you go. Your eyes twitch. I don't, I don't. I just and you wanna, lose work efficiency. Yeah, it's true. I just want to mention, if you guys heard a crack, I don't know, like five minutes ago, that was my jaw dislocating. We're going to I, have to talk yawned, about TMJ. I yawn. In a I'm future terrible TMJ. That's whatever. Temporal it happens. Dibular joint dysfunction. Oh, and we'll talk about that. Yes, my jaw dislocates. Yes. When I yawn, it's terrible. It um, sounds awful. It did. I, I didn't realize you guys heard it, but I. Thought I saw sounds show up. <laughs> oh, no. That crack was my jaw. Well, I want to talk just a little bit about medical supplies, using it as a barter item. I remember some time ago we had a paramedic who asked about the importance of things like silver and gold for barter purposes in a collapse, something that, of course, you want to have medical supplies, you want food, and you need shelter, you need water. But do you need silver and gold? I would say I've, that... You're going to break out in song in a second. Silver and gold. Silver. That's from Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. I was going to say, it's a Christmas song. Yeah, well, I watched that when I was Every a kid. time you say that, I'm thinking yeah, of the silver song. Silver and gold. <laughs> and we are heading into the Christmas season. <laughs> yes, so. we are. All right, but silver and gold is barter. Now, I would say that very early mm-hmm. in an event, uh-huh. silver and gold may actually still have some value because people maybe don't realize yet right. that things are bad enough so that money or currency is just not going to have much effect on a post-apocalyptic economy. Right. I mean, you're going to need actual barter items, things that people can actually use, people things that people can eat. People are going to want something that's going to be useful for them now and not if society restabilizes right now if you have some on hand that's wonderful it's very useful but like i said i think only in the early stages when people don't realize that money is actually worthless in terms of long-term survival well you know that's it in the end defensive items medical supplies food these are going to be the most valuable surplus items you're going to have for trading now 
food, of course, has got to be in short supply, and you may not really have enough to give out to other people or to trade other people f- uh, for something else. Right. But the truth of the matter is, is if you are a prepper, you probably have quite a bit of food stored away already. Well, I think that's a good idea. I agree. The, the fear, I think, at the beginning is how long is this going to last? Exactly. <clears throat> you know? Well, very few people know how to, let's say, garden, really how to grow their own food. There are a lot of, we, we've gone through master gardener courses and things like that. So we have a pretty good idea and we're pretty uh, adept in getting our seeds to grow and produce actual edible plants. But very few people have that. And there's actually a learning curve. Oh boy. That goes along with it. And you won't you believe all the things that are trying to destroy your food. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and the truth is, you really don't want to go through the learning curve when you are actually depending on that plant to produce something to live. Oh, can you imagine? On. So that is a, a major issue. You have to realize your garden is also subject to the whims of the weather, yep. uh, amount of rainfall, whether it's a hurricane or some other weird storm comes and destroys your crops. Uh, extremes in temperature yeah. so you know hot very hot weather is no good very cold weather is no good uh, of course soil conditions uh, pests these are all a factor so if you have food to barter you certainly have some real purchasing power but the bottom line is can you afford to spare it right so that's, that's a hard decision like i said you don't decision. know how long whatever has occurred is going to continue yes are the grocery stores going to fill back up in a month in three months a year you know two you weeks, don't know two weeks you don't know that's that's the tough thing that's exactly when it comes right. to bartering or, or ever what can you let go of right exactly now let's say you have surplus food <clears throat> and you can trade for it well there are going to be items like defensive items that are going to be important for protection our friend james wesley rawls he feels that ammunition is going to be the most important barter item and so some people are stockpiling ammunition. Uh-huh. The only thing is to that, trade. of course, not, not so much to use, but to use as as barter. Say, as barter, right? And that's wonderful. But I think a lot of other people are also doing that, and it's probably more important, I think, to have food and certainly something that you consider necessary to. Make a wound is going to need supplies that oh, will heal a wound, it, sure, right? Sure, absolutely. Now, if you have, by the way, if you have uh, guns or firearms, make sure you know how to use them safely. Practice with them regularly. Everybody knows that a gun can, if can, accidentally go off, and you have to be sure that you're not uh, as dangerous, not be. Dangerous to yourself yeah. as well shoot as to others. Exactly, right. Don't shoot yourself in the foot. I actually have a a slide in one of my presentations, which is somebody who shot themselves actually in the foot. Now, having said that, I have to say that spare ammunition is not bad as a survival item, as a barter item. So, why do I think that medical supplies have really important barter value? Well. These items, and of course the knowledge of how to use them, are going to become really important materials and services 
both in the long and short term after a disaster. And the reason is very simple. You can easily make a wound with a weapon, but very few people are going, and, and a lot of people are going to have weapons, a lot of people are going to have ammunition, but very few people are going to have the things that are necessary to actually heal a wound. And if you have, so if you have extra bandages, antibiotics, blood clotting agents, other medical things that are, these things are, are unique and irreplaceable goods, in my opinion, in a world where there is no cash, where there is no rule of law, you need to have the ability to deal with the kinds of things that can happen. And if you have extra items, well, you know what? They are extraordinarily useful in times of trouble. Now, that's supplies. Now, let's talk a little bit about medical knowledge. I mean, being able to know how to stop bleeding, how to deal with orthopedic injuries, how to perform long-term wound care, treat infection, things like that. If you have that knowledge as well as the supplies that you need and the medications that you need, well, you know what? You have to realize that your services as a medic actually have a value. I mean, what do you think that that value would be? Well, think about a circumstance where a family has a child that's sick or a loved one that's injured. Well, you know what? It's a pretty compelling argument to me for taking the time and effort needed to learn these skills, even in normal times. And I hope that that's right. Uh, our podcasts and our articles and all the stuff that we do has encouraged at least some of you to learn a little bit more about being able to help out in an, emer- in an emergency, how to think about what you would do in circumstances where you didn't have a hospital just around the corner. I mean, exactly. that's really our mission. Now, of course, that's wonderful to help people, and it doesn't mean you should expect something in return every time you help someone in, in medical need. I think that there's a major value in terms of goodwill in a survival community, and, and don't underestimate this, and you're going to have grateful parents if they're able they're going to want to reward you in some way for saving a child's life without your saying what it is you need to have and so by doing that and by letting the community know that you're willing to help and maybe use some of your medical supplies to help somebody that is sick or injured well knowing that the community may actually expend some of their resources to protect you because you are the person that they'll go to when somebody is injured or sick and you become essentially the medic for the community. So that's the thing, you know, your skills may be deemed so valuable that you become an asset that the community makes a priority to protect. And that's, you cannot put a value on that, a price on that. Now, even when the drugs and the equipment run out, Remember, your medical expertise will still be there. It'll be valuable, especially if you studied maybe some herbalism, get an understanding of what plants in your area might have medicinal value. That's going to help cement your long-term value to the group. Now, food, water, and shelter, they are indeed, look, the most important things. I, You know it. I know it. you got to have those if things go south. But medical supplies and knowledge how to use them to me is a strong second. I want you to keep this in mind as you put together your storage supplies, your stockpiles. These are some of the most important things that I think that you could have for trading and also for volunteering. Well, I think we only have just a few minutes left. I'm going to say just a little bit about glues. Now, 
wounds to close wounds. There are a lot of different methods available to close wounds, a laceration, for example. There are tapes like Steri-Strips. I think those are very useful to have. If you use Steri-Strips, make sure you have some tincture of benzoin, B-E-N-Z-O-I-N. That's sort of a uh, sticky material that uh, that causes the uh, Steri-Strips or the butterfly closures to stay in place even through showers and baths. So I think it's important to have some of those available. I think you should have sutures. I think you should have staples and you should have pretty much every wound closure method that's available. And one of those is a medical glue. Medical glues are also known as cyanoacrylates. And there is a particular type of uh, cyanoacrylate that is a medically expensive and prescription version of a wound closure material that's called Dermabond. Uh, there are other names for it, Surgicil and others. And like I said, these are by prescription only and medical grade adhesives made specifically for use on the skin. And that's good. They're excellent. They create an environment which speeds healing, may decrease the risk of infections with bacteria like staph, things that can cause infections. Now, when do you use a skin glue? A skin glue would be indicated when there's little or no tension, not a lot of tension, it's not gaping, you have wounds not gaping open. In a dry wound, a wound that's no longer bleeding, and a wound that's not over a joint is not gonna get a lot of stress. So that's important. By the way, glues are not to be used inside the mouth. So that's important. So there's also another type of glue called super glue. That's just another version of cyanoacrylate and it's industrial superglue. You'll find it for, le for very cheap, absolutely no prescription needed. You can stockpile as much as you want. And this is actually also available and actually will work to close wounds. Yeah, I would use the gel version. It seems to work better. And the thing is about these glues is that there may be a slight, slight increase in the chance of having a reaction to it but that can easily be evaluated, identified earlier by simply putting a drop of, of super glue on your, let's say, the inside of your forearm and take a look at it and see what happens over 24 hours. If it becomes red and angry and nasty looking, then obviously you're allergic to it and you shouldn't use it. But if you don't have that response, it will work to close a wound. So how do I know this? How... So how do I know this? How can old Dr. Bones tell you that you can use regular industrial superglue to actually close a wound? Because not only are there a lot of anecdotal testimonies by people that that's what they've done, but there are entire countries that don't have two nickels to rub together. Cuba is one of them. And sure enough, in the emergency room, they not uncommonly use things like superglue to close wounds. And they claim that there's even less of an infection rate than with the me expensive medical super glue, the medical super glue, the Dermabond or Surgiseal. So how to use topical skin adhesive glue. Number one, you have to hold the wounds together tightly so that you're not going to get any glue inside the skin, inside the laceration. If you do, then it forms a barrier between the two edges of the skin and the skin will not close. You want to gently brush the glue over the laceration or just put a layer over the laceration and you don't want to push any below the level of the skin. And then you apply three layers, one on top of another, allowing 
each uh, the uh, glue to dry a little bit each time. And what you do with the first layer is put it right on top and a little bit wider over the area of the laceration. The second one you put right on top of the first layer and go even wider. And then the third one, you do it again. You put it right on top and then go even wider a third time, and that will increase the strength of the closure. Now, once they're completely dry, you might even consider adding some Steri-Strips on top to increase the strength of the closure. But the thing is, you don't want to use things like antibiotic ointment. Ordinarily, you would use that on most wound closures, but avoid it in closures with skin glue because it breaks down the compound. So that's important. It's important also to know that the glue itself will help protect the wound from infection. So that's something that's very, very important. But you also have to remember closures with uh, glues are not as strong as closures with things like sutures or staples, especially in the first few days. So it's important to be able to correctly pick the right closure method when you decide a wound needs to be closed. And that's an important decision too. We'll talk about that in a future show. When do you actually close a wound? That's all the time we have for this episode of the Survival Medicine Hour with Joe Alton and Amy Alton, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. We hope you enjoyed the show and we hope that you'll tune in next week for our next episode. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week. Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family medical bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did.